Hello, and welcome to The Link Podcast, the industry's link to learn, innovate, news, and knowledge in global supply chain intelligence, hosted by food logistics and supply and demand chain executive. We cover everything from transportation and warehousing trends and new technologies to food safety and sustainability, anything impacting today's supply chains. I'm Brielle Jekyll, Associate Editor of Food Logistics and SDCE, and in this episode, I speak to a couple of executives on the delicate concept of supplier-buyer negotiations. A recent study from negotiation consulting firm Scottwork says that 60% of sellers renege on agreements during, made during negotiations. 48% of negotiators say that they have frequently no time to prepare, and only 24% say that negotiations create long-term value for their business. The report found that average negotiators are actually poor negotiators, most being too selfish or confuse persuasion with negotiation and don't trade when they should. Scottwork CEO Brian Buck gives us a little more insight into what goes on in the negotiation room. And supply chain lawyer Sarah Rathke details some do's and don'ts for us. So let's link into those interviews now. Hi, I'm Brielle Jekyll. I'm the associate editor here, and today I'm speaking with Brian Buck of Scottwork. Um, we're talking about uh, supplier and buyer relationships and how some feel like a lot of suppliers have lied to them in the past. Um, and you recently finished a survey on this um, that shows, um, w- w- do you want to go into the survey for a little bit? Sure, yeah. So. We conducted a global survey. We uh, surveyed over uh, 5,300 executives uh, from uh, uh, sales and buying executives all the way up to the C-level suite. They represent uh, about $80 trillion in trade. And we asked them a variety of questions uh, around what they're experiencing at the negotiating table. And one of the things that uh, fascinated us is we asked about this idea of ethics and how our you know, how do you feel ethics is represented at the negotiating table? Are people lying to you? Are they deceiving? How are they really trying to manipulate their their the power balance, if you will? And uh, surprisingly, 46% of, of buyers uh, believe that they've been lied to by the sellers. Um, interestingly, that, that percentage doesn't change all that much when you ask the sellers the, the, the same question. So it's almost both parties are feel like uh, they're, they're being lied to, if you, if you will, in some, some way. Now, we didn't get into the, uh, the degree of the lie. It, was it a white lie? Was it a gross misrepresentation of what's happening? But suffice it to say that ethics are lacking at the negotiating table. Mm-hmm. And obviously, so the, this survey took place before the pandemic really yes. took place, right? Yes, it did. So yeah. obviously, since then, things have maybe changed a little bit. I know uh, relationships have been a little strained, um, but hopefully everyone's understanding uh, during this time. Do you, do, do you know anything uh, in that regards? Well, we haven't uh, done an update to the study mm-hmm. since uh, the pandemic's hit, but what we are seeing is some interesting elements. So first, it's, it's understand the reason why people are lying at the, at the negotiating table. Mm-hmm. It has a lot to do with the perception that they can manipulate their power balance through, through lies uh, or the bending of the truth or spinning 
things in a, in a positive light to their advantage. Uh, a lot of that has to do with just a general lack of understanding of where their true power lies. And so because of that, they feel like they need to embellish uh, what's, what's real or not real or put out false positions because they believe, well, at some point I'm going to have to uh, uh, compromise or give something up. So there's a lot of misconception with where power lies and therefore that creates this, this opportunity for the ethics to be bent. So now if we take that premise and come to what's happening now in the pandemic world where there's actual changes going mm -hmm. on all over the place. So as companies, we, I mean, we literally instantly went virtual overnight and everybody's had to try and figure out what this means. On top of that, you have industry after industry that are suffering and they, they don't have, uh, they're not able to keep the same commitments that they once did. So they have all these outstanding contracts that they need to deal with. Contrast that with other industries that are booming right now. Mm -hmm. uh, everything from telecommunications like Zoom, which uh, uh, we're utilizing now, and pharmaceutical industry. Uh, there, there's a lot of, of energy going on there as well. So there's a feast and famine uh, element that's happening. But across the board, all of those contracts and all those agreements that we had created and built are at risk because the underlying assumptions and presumptions about how we constructed that contract has now changed. And so people are now coming back to the table. Some of the old, the same old tactics are there. If they feel like they're in a really weak position, they're tending to maybe exaggerate that position even more in hopes of getting sympathy to maybe have some changes made. Uh, while others are just coming to the table very truthful and, hey, this is so bad, I've got nothing, I don't have to bend the truth. Here it is. And uh, let's talk about what we need to do. So when the dust settles, it's going to be interesting to go back and, and see, did ethics at all really change? My sense, and maybe it's because my, it's also my hope, I actually think it's gotten a little bit better because we're kind of all sharing this shared experience. And so it, that tends to create when you have that kind of transparency, it tends to create a little bit more honesty on both sides. I agree. I mean, even as a consumer, you know, when my when I'm ordering stuff online or whatever, and it's taking forever, or, I, or, or the site crashes or something. I mean, we have so much more understanding now because it's such yeah. a different time. It's amazing how much I'm forgiving Amazon right now. Yeah. Oh, sure. No, two day. That could be two weeks. Could be two months. I'm okay. I get it. <laughs> exactly. So you touched on this a little bit. Um, with, you know, saying it's really that power struggle. Is that how this happens? Is, is one, one party feels as though they don't have the power. So they tell, I don't know if they tell a white lie or they just come across as maybe too salesy. How do you feel like this happens? <laughs> well, I, I do think it comes down to just a lack of understanding of what, what power is. And I, I, I believe that the reason that happens is there's really not, when people are preparing for a negotiation, what, one of the things that we find unequivocally, everybody says preparation is absolutely critical to negotiation. Um, and, and the respondent is through, through the roof on that one. However, when we start to dive into that and we ask how much time do you spend, what does that preparation look like? How structured is it? What are you actually doing? That's where it all falls apart because what we start to see is people aren't really spending a lot of time. Yes, preparation is value, but, but I don't have time to do it, so I don't do it very often. Or I do it in the two minutes leading up to the call I'm about to have. That's really not a thorough preparation. Mm -hmm. The second part of that is the inefficiency of the preparation, meaning 
they tend to just look at themselves. They don't look at the other side. They're not, they're, they're not considering that they're actually going to go negotiate with somebody else. So we have to consider both parties. And, and when you don't do that, what winds up happening is you either underestimate the power they have or you overestimate the power that you have and so this weird power dynamic starts to happen right when you walk in because you've made all these bad assumptions. And then the third part uh, to this is that as they're going through that preparation process and they're not considering the other side and they're not really taking that into consideration, it completely warps their strategy as they walk in to that negotiation and they mistake the purpose of the negotiation, which is ultimately to get to their desired outcome, but instead they get very steadfast in defending the strategy that they put together. Like it's more important to ensure the strategy work versus getting to the outcome. And it should be the opposite. You should be laser focused on the outcome and completely flexible on how you get there. I mean, isn't that even true with personal relationships? I guess it's just human nature. <laughs> yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, uh, if we think about so I'm <laughs> getting too much into uh, personal relationships uh, uh, aside, but you know, when my wife and I are focused on trying to achieve something, we may have mm -hmm. a common goal that we want to go after. She may want to go about it differently than I do. Um, so really the objective at that point or, or, or what we should be focused on is the objective. Like let's get to there. How we get there, we need to be amiable given each other's needs and desires to get to that point. Now let's take that to a commercial sense. It's really no different. If you walk into the negotiation and you can establish, hey, this is where we need to be or this is what you want to achieve out of that negotiation, how you get there shouldn't matter, assuming that it's ethical, moral, and, and, and legal. Um, so common thing that happens. We want to trade uh, volume for a pricing concession. So if I can give more volume, I can get a better price. We've all heard that. But what happens if volume is not a price driver. If volume is not a price driver, then, then your little strategy of changing volume uh, for price is not going to work. So you have to be flexible. And what we find is because people haven't considered that and they're not flexible on their strategy, they'll oftentimes abandon their objective just to try and really fit that strategy into what they're trying to do. And it, and it winds up really killing the, the negotiation. And now we come back to the ethics part where now people feel maybe trapped and they're in a corner and they're trying to get, get out of it. So they start bending the truth a bit to maybe over-exaggerate a point to help, help their position. Yeah, I can definitely see how that can happen. Um, now, before um, we get into what can you do, you know, to make sure that this, this goes right, um, what happens if uh, a little white lie happens and, and things are mismanaged and then down the line, a relationship becomes, you know, muddled? Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you what happens when you catch somebody in a little white lie. What, what do you think about them at that moment? Definitely. It changes your, your perception of them. That's right. And, no. and many relationships are built on, on trust first and foremost, and then obviously everything else gets built around it. So if you were to catch me in a lie, it's going to erode, it's going to erode our trust. Mm -hmm. And then from that point forward, every single agreement that we put into place, you're always going to have that in the back of your mind. Um, that person is maybe they're not going to tell the truth. We've got to really, you know, it's trust but verify. So everything starts to become a little bit more guarded. Uh, you start to do a little bit more, even more due diligence. Now, now some people may say, well, that's not bad. You should do that anyways. Well, there's a difference between 
just doing what you should be doing in a, in a normal negotiation. But when you start to, when the trust starts to erode, that has all sort of other implications from now doing even more fact checking to holding back information, not sharing it, uh, which will elongate the negotiation. Now they take more time. People start taking these very staunch stances in the negotiation of I'm going to dig my heels in here and I'm going to dig my heels in there. And that creates a whole other set of issues. So those little white lies can lead to really big problems down the road. Yeah, I can see that. So what would you say are some best practices, you know, to ensure smooth relations and to make sure, you know, yeah, well, first and foremost is, is I would say prepare thoroughly and an effective preparation just quite simply is think about the other side as well. What's, what do they want? What do they want to avoid? And, and then ask yourself the question, how can I give them what they want in ways that are acceptable to me? And I think if you just start with that presumption, if I'm going to focus on the other side, I'm going to think about what I can give to them in a way that's okay for me, it's really going to help you understand your power balance and kind of keep you out of that uh, white lie trap, if you will. The second part is I would say, be as transparent as you can. Um, get the bad news out up front. So if there is bad news to share, tell, tell that early on in the conversation. Don't waste your time negotiating and doing all these things and at the very end, give them that zinger, which is what a lot of people do. So, so common things would be, there's now a clause in your contract which uh, maybe changes the force majeure language to deal with pandemics that might be uh, more one-sided towards your position or you're asking for more elongated terms. We're going now from 30 days to 90 days to help with cash flow management during this time. Those are all bad news, so to speak, and, and people get nervous about sharing that with the other party. Sometimes it's because they are afraid to you know, be the bearer of the bad news. They don't want to spoil the relationship. I would just say get it out up front and let people know right up front, hey, here's the things that we're not going to be able to, that are not negotiable. These are the things that we have to deal with. I understand if you don't want to do that negotiation now, yeah. that's fine, but get it out up front early. That gives you a lot of credibility as you go. And then the final part is, is I would say that in your, if you're in a negotiation and you start to you think you're catching somebody in a lie or they're lying to you as I would first, before you jump to that conclusion, ask some clarifying questions, make sure that uh, what you're assuming is actually true. So do a little follow-up, do a little fact finding, uh, confirm it. And if it's something that's unbearable, quite frankly, I would, I would call the other party out on it and let them know that's not behavior that, that you're going to tolerate. Otherwise, if you let it go, then you start training the other side to go, hey, you know what? I can tell a little white lie every once in a while. Yeah. They, they'll, they'll, they'll be fine with it. And that's going to create more issues for you down the road as well. Absolutely. Well, uh, I really hope uh, you guys can revisit the survey soon. I'd be really interested to see um, what it would be like post-pandemic. Yeah, I think it would be very fascinating as well because yeah. again, I think the shared experience is is really shaping how people are approaching uh, the negotiating table and each other. Quite frankly, I mean, mm -hmm. I think we're far more engaged with each other now. Mediums like this allow us to actually be be more connected. We're not taking this kind of interaction for granted anymore, and I think that's maybe bringing a little bit of purity to some relationships. Not in all cases, but certainly in some. 
And I think in the supply chain, I mean, there's so many different companies involved in each part of the way that it's communication is key. So now that, you know, companies are becoming more comfortable with communicating outside of their organizations and stuff, hopefully, um, yeah, it'll, we'll see like a smoother <laughs> transition yeah. in the negotiation phases. Yeah, ho- hopefully. And in the supply chain, because there's so many reliant pieces so we go from uh, everything that's happening downstream is going to impact us upstream. And there's, there's so many interrelated cogs that, uh, you know, we have to be very mindful of, of what's going on, uh, not just now, but, but in our future as well. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was great meeting you. Great meeting you as well. Happy to be here. Yeah. And, you know, we'll definitely reconnect in the future. And I want to see what else you guys have going on. Oh, thank you very much. everyone. I'm here with Sarah Rathke, head of supply chain at Squire Patent Boggs, and she's going to give us some insight on uh, supplier and buyer negotiations from a legal standpoint uh, and offer some good advice in that aspect. So hi, Sarah. Thanks for coming on. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to talk with your listeners. Did I pronounce your last name right? You did. You did great. Thanks. Awesome. So I guess my first question I have is I talked with Scott Work, and they uh, recently did a report and said that uh, 46% of buyers in negotiations knew that they were lied to during the process. Um, Mm -hmm. So if this does happen, what are the effects of this? Like what happens afterwards? So uh, the answer under the law is what the answer is often under the law. It depends. Um, uh, it depends, number one, when you know you're being lied to. First of all, if you know it at the time and you have the ability to perform your own due diligence, then you can't be said to be harmed by believing the lie. Um, but second, you know, contracts, those boiler point, boilerprint provisions and contracts that people often see but don't fully absorb because we've become so used to them, those often protect um, sellers and vendors and suppliers from claims like that, and the provisions specifically that I'm referring to are sometimes there'll be an integration clause that says, um, you know, what you see here is a full text of the agreement. There are no other documents incorporated in this agreement. Any modifications require written assent by both parties. That makes the agreement be what the four corners of that document is. And that's a very good policy for contracting but it can lead to not very good results. If truly you were misrepresented something that was uniquely in the supplier's knowledge and the buyer had no ability to learn the truth on its own. Um, It's a provision of the law, it's a fact of the law that encourages buyers, particularly those with sophisticated buying and purchasing departments and sophisticated legal departments, it encourages them to do their due diligence. There are some cases, typically these involve egregious circumstances or judges that are particularly sympathetic to these things, where courts will hold that misrepresentations or whatever it is that a supplier represented to be the truth does in fact become part of the deal, um, such that the buyer can sue for failure to live up to the representation that was made. It does happen every once in a while. Typically under the law, it shouldn't, um, particularly if you do have what's called an integration clause in your agreement, but every once in a while you'll find a sympathetic judge. But that's, the, that's a variance, that's not um, standard practice. 
So how do some of these instances come about? Like, how is it? I know no one really kind of seeks out to lie or to misrepresent, but so how, how do you, do you have any examples or not naming names of how this can sure. happen? Yeah, and I'll, I'll keep this to reported decisions so that anybody can look it up. I forget the name of the case, but it has to do with, so your typical situation it involves like your marketing or your business development function getting ahead of your capabilities. Um, and so there's a particular case, I forget its name, but I'm pretty sure it's a 10th Circuit case, federal case, where a manufacturer of, um, uh, of manufacturing equipment that was to be used for a bakery um, so to make baked goods in mass, represented that its uh, conveyor equipment could handle pretty much any baked product or any sort of powdered product. The reason being is that, you know, one of the major components of these foods is like sugar, powdered sugar, things like that. Um, and I guess it turns out that that stuff can be particularly difficult to convey uh, adequately via conveyor or whatever, uh, via factory equipment. It turned out that the buyer installed the equipment in its factory, but um, it was not able to transfer the, the powdered material, the powdered ingredient for the baked goods sufficiently without causing equipment bams and, you know, with getting all the, the, all the product from point A to point B. So it sued the manufacturer. And in that case, um, I believe the court simply denied summary judgment, which means judgment as a matter of law, which means... I can't figure this out from the admissions and the law by itself. We have to have a full trial on this. Mm -hmm. It said that in that case, it is possible that the seller's representation could have become part of the agreement. The court would need to hear evidence on that to be sure one way or the other. I believe that was the outcome, but um, if it was, that's not a typical outcome. And I say that more not to represent the exact outcome of that particular case, but as an illustration of, of what you asked, which is where, how do these things arise? Yeah. They arise typically when, you're, when your marketing and business development function gets ahead of your capabilities, um, which does happen quite a lot. Okay, I can see that, yeah, absolutely. Um, and now when stuff like that happens, does it, it often, like was something that uh, became a big deal because it wasn't easily handled. Does that end up changing some regulations and stuff moving forward? It can change um, companies buying practices. Mm -hmm. uh, it definitely can. Um, you know, a lot of the dysfunction that I see relates to a company, whether it be the buyer or the seller, not being totally integrated and coordinated as between its major functions when it's making major decisions like this, major purchasing or selling decisions like this, particularly in ambiguous circumstances. So let's just say the risk is higher, the less developed your project, your product or your project is. Okay. So there are, about, there are three functions that need to be integrated. The first is the engineering, you know, can the, can the product technically do what you need it to do on both sides? Uh, the second part is the legal function. Does the agreement reflect accurately the technical capabilities of the product? Have we accounted for risk appropriately? And then the third function is, is of course, your finance function, which is to say, we've got a product, it has these capabilities, we've legally accounted for risk to, a degree, to the degree um, encouraged by the legal group. In light of those two things, is it priced correctly? Can we make a profit out of, you know, the claims that are likely to result or, or you know, any dysfunction that's likely to result as a result of risk that we haven't accounted for? Um, and often, the, you know, 
leave aside coordinating with the other side, with your contractual counterpart, your buyer, or your supplier, or whatever. It's a failure to coordinate completely internally that leads to, that's where the problems start. Okay. And so that's kind of um, what you do afterwards, right? So what happens, right. how do you, what do you do to kind of prevent anything like this from happening or make sure that there's a symbiotic relationship happening when it comes to negotiations? Right. Well, exactly. I don't, I don't want to be doing it afterwards. I mean, so, mm -hmm. you know, if, if the legal oversight that I provide is analogous to being a doctor, what I really want to be is a primary care doctor, a checkup doctor. I want to prevent problems before they start. But, you know, sometimes companies don't have adequate uh, guidance at the beginning. So you get called in when there's a little bit of tension in the relationship. And then now you're treating a disease. Um, you're more analogous to treating the disease. Or sometimes you're called in when, you know, the parties are at full out blows and they're at the precipice of or have indeed commenced litigation. At that point, I don't know if you're a doctor or a mortician, <laughs> but that's obviously the least um, desirable outcome for both parties in the situation. And it's, right. it's better to address these problems proactively when you see them. Um, unfortunately, some of these purchasing decisions, you know, nobody wants to be in trouble or to have trouble. So it can, it can ask a lot of individual employees who are in the purchasing department or um, you know, in the, in the product development department or who are in the business development department to flag something that went wrong that can be kind of perilous seeming to employees. So oftentimes things get missed because people are afraid to raise a flag or are not truly empowered to solve problems when they do arise. Mm -hmm. What would you say, what would you offer as like kind of a best practice as a buyer? Well, I think you need to, um, I mean, as a buyer, it's easier. You, in theory, at least you have all the power. Or supplier. So, you know, it's best not to let issues slide in the beginning mm -hmm. under the theory that maybe they'll solve themselves. I mean, you do need to, you do need to flag issues when they arise. Otherwise, there's a real chance that later on, if the, if the issues balloon, which is, that's basically the only thing that they do, they, they get bigger, they never get smaller. Um, if they balloon later, you can't be said to have waived the issue or had knowledge about it or acceded to it in any sort of way. Okay. So what do you think are other um, kind of pitfalls that can happen um, in negotiations when it comes to suppliers and buyers that people need to look out for? Well, I mean, a lot of things. You can, for instance, negotiate a perfectly workmanlike agreement You've done your forecasting. You think you know what's going to happen. And then, you know, you wake up one day and all of a sudden there's a global pandemic that neither you nor your contractual counterparty has accounted for. And neither one of you wants to take on the lion's share of the risk associated with that or the damages associated with that. So, I mean, I think 2020 is is given us a very up-close view of the, like, and then stuff happens problem. Sometimes stuff just totally happens. And I think you know, we'll be litigating pandemic-related problems for a very long time after the pandemic itself goes away. Right. I, I know that you you and I worked on an article that I, I covered on the force majeure clause where yeah. a lot of people weren't able to uphold their end of the bargains because of this crazy 
pandemic. It, it's it's right. really There's suddenly no market for whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been great though. Like I, I mentioned in the article and and in interviews in past, um, how nice it is to see people looking out for each other so far, I guess, because it's still going on. I don't right. think I've really seen anyone, um, you know, going for the jugular or, or being very upset about when, when negotiations have gone wrong because of the pandemic. Have you? A few. There are a few cases wending their way through the courts. There are, you know, I've got clients that sort of have us on high alert for, for certain problems to, you know, to be aware of if they get worse or go one way or the other. Um, but really some of this niceness is genuine niceness. I don't want to, I don't want you to take you out of that place emotionally. Um, but right. the courts, part of it also is that the courts are largely unavailable to us to one degree or another. So there is no third party mediated setting that makes it safe to try to bludgeon each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's something that only works in a mediated setting left without a impartial mediator. People are kind of to some degree or another working it out as best they can and putting aside their agree- their disagreements to be resolved, you know, at a later time, perhaps, if needed. Yeah, there's always, you know, one or two examples of, of against the norm. But I, I guess with it being such a hard time for everyone, I think a lot of people are understanding. And like you said, without those mediators to be able to really go after each other. Um, right. Nice. Uh, one forum where I think we'll see this get played out a lot will be when the bankruptcies really start, the restructuring and otherwise, because, you know, in a, in a chapter 11 or chapter nine um, context, the way that, you know, contractual disputes get resolved is everybody gets in line and sort of, you know, works them out that way. It, it is adversarial, but it's adversarial towards, with an eye towards, there's not going to be money to cover this for everybody. So I think that's where you're going to see some of these disputes get channeled um, once it's clear what businesses are going to make it and what businesses are not, which is, you know, just sort of like extremely depressing. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely. And I'm thinking we should definitely revisit this topic in a year and see, um, you know, what has happened because it's really only in the beginning, especially because we're still technically in the middle of, of all this. We don't know what's right. going to happen in winter. Right. And everybody wants to know what, you know, the, the companies that are doing fine, you know, the large retailers, for instance, want to know what they should do if they see signs of insolvency in their suppliers or in their contractual partners. The key is to treat everybody as though they have the ability to pay. So pursue your claims um, as though you're dealing with completely solvent companies, but monitor their bankruptcy status so that you can mm-hmm. be on the ready to be in line when, when a claim needs to be filed. Wow, that's great advice. I, I hadn't really even thought of that. Unfortunately, um, it's advice that I dispense quite a lot right now. Yeah, it's definitely a rough time. Ugh, the worst. Yeah, I really hope it gets better in the future. All right. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a bad economic time if you happen to be a supply chain lawyer, but I, nobody yeah. wants to live like this. Exactly. Do you have anything else that you want to add? You know, some things that you've been thinking about in regards to negotiations? Well, not, not really with negotiations, but if I could go a little bit more meta for a moment. Absolutely. You know, the, the place that we're in is so 
bizarre and unique and geopolitical in some ways. Um, and, you know, the tools that we've used to solve these sort of pedestrian supply chain disputes are going to be are totally inadequate to deal with what we're living in now. You know, I, people of my age, our parents told us like, go, go, when you go to college, learn something practical, learn a skill. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure that that's actually, I, I don't think that they were right. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, we should have, we all should have like, we should have learned geopolitics and we should have probably studied harder to understand where we are now because we're in a situation where we've got these like tremendous, um, we have political nationalistic forces arguing for more parochialism in our business operations. We have business operations that are arguing exactly the opposite. And right now we're caught in those two unique crosswinds. And it's going to be interesting to see how we resolve this. So the supply chain issues, these, these micro issues are also very much caught up in these macro issues about, you know, how much international business will we, will we actually be doing? In what industries, you know, we're seeing very clear indications that many countries, not just ours, would prefer that people source uh, pharmaceutical and military products as close to home as possible. There have been some laws passed, for instance, in France and Japan to that extent. There's some gray level uh, regulations and directives passed in our own country relating to defense, Department of Defense and Homeland Security materials involving that too. And, and you know, everybody's saying right now that nobody's comfortable with pharmaceutical uh, ingredients being us being at the mercy of some other country who might also need them. Absolutely. So this is going to... This is going to cause a shift in some manufacturing, which, you know, nothing is ever good or bad fully. It's, it's just different. So you're going to see different emphases. If you want to make things in the United States again, you can do that. But either it's going to have to become a more automated proposition, in which case automated engineers are going to be at a premium. Or, um, you know, you're just going to have to figure out a way to pay, pay people less. I don't really see that one selling very well. So, you know, right. where are we? We're in a situation where most companies probably would do better if they had supply chain experts of the geopolitical type on their actual boards and in their actual C-suites. And we'd probably be better also if, you know, we had some understanding of what the government is going to do in terms of requiring reshoring of manufacturing in certain industries or, or more generally. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's funny you brought that up because one, I've, I'm working on many uh, articles about this because it is our 20 year anniversary this year. So it, we're looking at things from the, uh, our first issue and revisiting it uh, for today and seeing the differences. And one of the biggest things is 20 years ago when we first launched is when that kind of outsourcing overseas kind of all started. Right. And, and now it's become so prolific that consumers are swinging the other way and they want, you know, goods and their food and all that stuff from lo more local sources and they want to see, you know, where it comes from and things like that. And then so on top of that with the pandemic, exposing all these kind of, I don't want to say holes, but thin stretches in the supply chain that have come from outsourcing so much I wonder, yeah, we, the, the big question is what will it look like in the future? Yeah. Well, and 20 years ago we were, when supply chains were becoming international and sort of newly. So we were like, Oh, we, 
we must get more qualified technicians in the supply chain. They, it has to be more credentialed people. It'd be best if you had an MBA, you know, and, and some understanding of how to do business internationally. Now I think we're practically saying, really to, to operate a supply chain successfully in this day and age, you have to have an understanding of geopolitical politics and probably a crystal ball. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's asking an awful lot, but that is the direction that we're heading in. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we are getting closer to having a crystal ball with uh, analytics and machine learning. Yeah, but I'm not sure there's any model that accounted for this. Yeah, exactly. It's It's been a ride. And um, I actually spoke to somebody this week about um, the vaccines and how they're working on the vaccines and how blockchain is going to be a huge part of that for the issue that you said, because of all these pharma uh, ingredients coming from overseas and all these different locations, the blockchain, they're going to use it to be able to to track it better, to provide clear traceability, um, and then also to, to better track the results and the, the trials that are going on that are more authenticated. Yeah, that's a good point. Of the, I mean, for all our talk about domesticating the pharmaceutical supply chain, of the four vaccines that are currently in stage three, three are uh, three are Chinese. One is in the UK, though partnered with a US company, and then the next. Uh, the next vaccine to jump into stage three will actually be a U.S. California endeavor. Oh, so very, very true. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. This is a great conversation, and I'm I'm glad to learn all the legal aspects of the supply chain and everything that's been happening. Uh, and I'm really, you know, we, we're all hoping for a better future. I know. Well, I'm just, you know, glad that my stupid liberal arts degree from Georgetown finally like is like coming in handy a little bit. <laughs> I actually were, uh, used to work on the retail side of things or, you know, that was my, my beat and my focus before. And I recently switched to the supply chain in about January, February. So mm-hmm. what a time for me to come into the supply chain. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, all of a sudden everybody thinks we're interesting, which you exactly. know, was not always the case at every moment. Exactly. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And thank you again to my guests for giving us that insight. Tune in every Tuesday for our traditional episodes of Link by Food Logistics and Supply and Demand Chain Executive, accompanied by more Link Educate episodes later on in the week. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe on the Apple and Google Playlist apps so you never miss an episode.